G'day, this is a Today's Story podcast. Today's story is a bit of a strange one. It's 1952 and my grandfather's brother Jack and his wife May were returning home from a Gold Coast holiday. After a while they stopped beside the road for a cup of tea and later were ready to continue. Jack's old car had to be started by cranking. He switched on the ignition. He went round to the front of the car. A quick crank. The engine started. But he'd forgotten to take his car out of gear and apply the handbrake. The car started and moved forward. Jack was knocked to the ground and the car ran over his left leg. Jack had an ear ripped off and suffered a bad break to his leg. He subsequently died in hospital eight weeks later due to complications from the leg injury. Poor old Jack. He's got the dubious distinction of being run over and killed by his own car. So anyhow, I want to investigate the circumstances of this accident and to question whether it would happen today. I suspect not. So once again, we need our motoring guru, Kev. Hi, Kev. Hi, Peter. Hi, Greg. Hi. Okay, Peter. Um, so let's start with the circumstance of the accident. Um, you mentioned it was uh, Jack and his wife in the car, Jack and May, and it was somewhere near Coomera. Can you be a bit more specific? And, and when was it? What time of the year? It was a Saturday, the 5th of April, 1952. Apparently Jack and May had been having a bit of a holiday down at the Gold Coast and they were on the way back to where they lived in Dolby. Okay. And what actually happened then? Well, having left Burley Heads, they got as far as Coomera and decided it was time to have a cup of tea. So they pulled over beside the road, stopped the car, had the cup of tea, and then Jack goes round the front and uh, cranks the car while it's still in gear, and it started. Oh, okay. That doesn't sound very good. You mentioned he was uh, run over. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, that particular thing and why he'd be standing in front of a vehicle in gear? Or do we well, need our expert? We need our expert soon. The, the car he was driving was a Willys Night Tourer. Um, we'll have to talk about that a bit more too because I have no idea what a Willys Night Tourer is. For that matter, I don't know much about cranking cars. So, Kev, what... What's this cranking business all about? Well, the cranking was the, is the process that used back in the early days of vehicles before electric starters. So you had to manually crank the vehicle, crank the engine over to make it fire, and that was done with a uh, handle through the, uh, the front bumper bar of the vehicle generally, and then which um, engaged onto the crank rod of the vehicle and, um, and fired, you twisted the handle over and fired it. So... It uh, had, uh, did have certain dangers associated with it and you had to be particular on the way you, uh, you did that particular procedure. So there was a skill to cranking, was there? There was partially a skill to it, but you had to be you know, averse as to what were the dangers more than anything else. So uh, I think you said beforehand the, the car was left in gear. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the big no-no to start with. The car would have to been, it should have been neutral so, uh, and the handbrake should have been on as well too. My recollection of those days is uh, crank, cranking cars was a dangerous business mm. and that you always left your car parked in gear anyway. Yeah, but you had to, to crank the car, you'd have to take it out of gear right. and leave it in neutral. Otherwise, as in this situation, uh, Jack's got the car started, the car's in gear, no handbrake on, obviously. And he's yep. standing and in front of it. Standing in front of it. And yes. Away she goes. Yeah. Do we have any idea how common an accident this was? 
don't think we have any figures on it going back to those sort of times, Peter, but, um, you know, there was, I would suggest it was uh, one of the major dangers of uh, that particular time. I just think from my youth where they crank tractors and trucks and things like that, cranks seem to be involved in quite mm. a few of the, the, the accidents, broken arms and wrists and stuff yeah. like that. I actually had an uncle come to think of it now. He was on a, on a, on a farm and I think he cranked his tractor yeah. and he was crushed by yeah. the tractor. As well, too. So that was back in the 1960s. Oh, okay. I suspect some of that might have happened a bit. And if it was like a farm accident, it wouldn't be treated as a road accident. It's an accident on a farm. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Cranking your old Fergie over. So sometimes the car would, you'd, you'd, um, the, on the steering column, you'd had a, uh, a, a spark adjuster and a, and a, oh, um, yes, yes. And a sort of a throttle adjuster. Yes. Choke. Yep. And you'd have to set those to, uh, and then get out. To the right, to the correct setting, then get out and crank the car over. It generally only takes half a half a turn of the crank, so from about nine o'clock to three o'clock, in a clockwise direction. In the in particular, in this case, the car had been running beforehand, so it would have been warm, mm. so it wasn't wasn't cold, so it would have cranked so it up pretty well straight away. Quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So maybe if it had taken a few turns to do it, he might have realised and got back in and taken out a neutral and put the brake on. But uh, as it fired up so quickly, he had no chance. Yeah, and got run over straight away. Mm. Uh, let's uh, talk about the car here, Kev. Um, when was the Willys Tourer sold in Australia? Uh, was it built here, or it was uh, the Willys Tourer was a, uh, was sold here from about the mid nineteen twenties through to the early nineteen thirties. It was uh, a car that was assembled by the um, the Holden Motor Bodybuilding Company at the time, the precursor of General Motors Holden, and because uh, Holden actually was a, a coach builder. Yes. Prior to that, so yep. they used to make a lot of uh, car bodies and so forth. So, it um, the tour of vehicle type vehicle was a, a four door, generally a four door sedan with a fabric roof, right, and um, fold down windows. There was no solid roof structure as such on a, on a tour of vehicle. Okay, so it was a fairly open sort of car. The Willys Company uh, had uh, financial problems in the early thirties, and um, basically the, the, that model finished. Around you know, 1930, 31. Right. Holden at that stage were building all types of vehicles for all different global brands. Um, they basically were a subcontractor, really, yes. in Australia. Yeah. And they'd build vehicles for Chevrolet, for uh, Willys, as we say, for um, Austin Morris, yeah. uh, Chrysler, and um, many other brands as well, too. So, and the reason why they were doing that was that um, after the First World War, the Australian government decided that. Um, there was a need for um, uh, protection of the Australian motor vehicle yep. industry in, the, in those early days. Yes. So the, the legislation was passed that the manufacturers could bring in their chassis from overseas and that there was a requirement then that the body be built here in Australia. Okay. So that's really where General Motors Holden and Holden itself uh, got developed. Got a big kick along. Got yeah. a big kick along. So it was, you know, industry assistance protection packages existed even back in the, yeah. the 1920s. Nation building. Nation building, that's it. Um, so this accident occurred in 52 and Willys had stopped uh, sending these things out uh, around about 20 years before that. Does that. Was that common to have cars that old at that stage? You know? At that stage of Australian history it was. And it's the same throughout the world as well because uh, okay. if you look at the time frames we're looking at here, um, the late 1920s, the, at the start of the 1930s, you get the Depression. Yep. It's the yep. global uh, situation and car production plummets. 
yes. so much so that I think you know, General Holden itself had, had fallen away to just a few thousand cars they were assembling or even hundreds of cars. Right, right. And to uh, to support the General Motors requirement going forward, General Motors purchased Holden at that stage. You run through the depression, very limited production required yep. because people can't just can't afford motor cars. And then you back that then backs up into the uh, the Second World War. Yes. So yes. all production at that stage then shifts over to military requirements. Yes. So there's no passenger type, no large passenger type requirement. Considered for, a luxury for that period of time for nearly yeah. uh, you know 15 years. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah, so post-Second World War, of course, the um, passenger car market develops again, builds up, and um, but there are still a lot of these cars, these old-style cars on the marketplace. Matter of fact, my own father was driving a, a, a Wheelie's Tourer as a Whippet yep. type vehicle at the, same time, at, the, at the same time, actually, just before. I recall people with Wheelie's uh, Whippets when I was a kid in the 50s. Mm. Uh, Yep, it was a major uh, you know, family car, and they yeah. drove all around South Australia through the Flinders Ranges and, and so forth. So uh, they did many country trips in the Whippet, not yep. here. I wasn't alive then, but uh, my brother talks about it. Yeah, yeah. So you say. Uh, um, so you say. It reminds me that uh, back in uh, the US in the 30s, they had what they call Hoovermobiles, and I discovered that was actually any type of vehicle that was now pulled by a horse because they couldn't afford to... Uh, have petrol, so they pull the engine out and turn it into a luggage bay, and they were back to the horse drawn era. <laughs> Sounds like something you see in and, India these well, days. Well, Hoover was the president, and it was his fault yeah. they had the depression, apparently. Mm. Yeah, so, was, so depressions were a bad time, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, so production of um, the, the Holden 48215 started in 1948, and um, in the first year, 1949, there was only 7,700 of those cars made. Right. So it's it's very low production volume. It, it increased you know, the year after twenty thousand cars. But yep. there's a large pent up demand yep. in the marketplace, and Ford are producing similar numbers as well too. That's right. Now Holden were involved in building aircraft during the war. Yeah, most of the all the production facilities were involved in in, in war supply effort, whether it be aircraft parts, uh, manufacture of um, marine boats for the navy, yep. uh, work boats, armaments. Uh, so we developed the expertise, and and now we're employing it for our own pleasure use, as it were. Mm, that's correct, and um, yeah, a lot of military trucks were, um, were made in Australia yes. too. The Chev Blitzers. Well, when you mentioned Willys before, I was thinking of the war because uh, Willys Jeep was. Yeah, well, a big, a big unit, but they were made by GM and uh, Ford and all sorts yeah. of companies. Made well, that's there. really where the, the Willys focus really developed. Then it was into yes. the Jeep type yes. vehicle, and that's where we still have the word Jeep today in the, in the marketplace, which is now owned by Chrysler. Yes. So where Willys was eventually taken over by by uh, American Motor, Mag, Motor Corporation, which was then absorbed into the Chrysler Corporation. And you know, Peter, where the Jeep comes from? Um, GP General Purpose. Mm. World War One, we had GS wagons, general service wagons, and by the time we had World War Two, we called them general purpose vehicles. There you go. You learn something new every you day. Do. You do indeed. That's why we come to these podcasts. Now, Peter, can you tell me a bit about the Willys? I think you've got some info there on them, haven't you? Well, I didn't know anything at all about this car until uh, I read about poor old Uncle Jack's death. So I went into Trove, that's the site where you can read old newspapers, and see, saw what they said about the Willys way back in the year. What I found, for instance, was an ad for the Willys in 1933. It gives you the prices for the Deluxe Tourer and the Roadster. Now, uh, Kev said the Tourer is a four-door vehicle with a soft roof. The Roadster, as I understand it, is um, the, the completely open vehicle. 
It then had a special three-passenger coupe version and a deluxe sedan, which I think means it's got a, a solid roof. That's correct. And the photo here looks like a solid roof. In fact, it looks like something Al Capone and his boys would drive around, quite frankly. That would be it. Anyhow, the thing that I found most intriguing about the ad was that it says this is the only car in Australia that has a 10,000-mile warranty. So what sort of warranties do cars have nowadays, Gerv? Oh, generally, it's uh, tw- um, sorry, two years. Three years. I've got a seven-year warranty on my Kia. Seven years. Three, yeah. Seven years. So that'll yeah. be a heck of three, a lot more Three years, 100,000 Ks. Yeah. Sorry, how many thousand? 100,000. 100,000, mm. not 10,000 miles. The other thing I found interesting is it says it does 25 miles a gallon, which I've converted to 11 litres per 100 K. That sounds fairly good to me. Not too bad. For mm-hmm. a car of that age. Yep. But the one that really intrigues me is that it claims that it has a speed capacity of 70 to 75 miles an hour. That's about 110 to 120 yeah. kilometres mm. an hour. I'm not sure what roads existed in 1933 to drive it that fast. And it does all of this with a 65 brake horsepower engine. That's only 50 kilowatts. Um, seems a bit light on. Mm. Anyhow, while I was uh, going through these old newspapers, I realised that what they did, and I think they still sort of do this today, was sell things by testimonials. Yes. And the testimonials they had about the Woolies Knights were stories about how far they drove them and how good they were and... You know, Uncle Bob drove them from here to here, and it was all great. This one here really intrigued me. It was a record run by the Willys Knight. This is 1928, from Brisbane to Townsville. And uh, they set this thing up. They left the Brisbane GPO at 2 a.m. on October the 9th and drove off to Townsville. Now, this is a real ripping yarn. They talk about every stop along the way. It took them four hours and 12 minutes to get to Gympie. It was a very bad fog was experienced as far as Caboolture, which caused some delay, and uh, also time was lost at the railway crossings. Um, anyhow, they uh, go along. There was three minutes delayed. Gimpy, when they swapped over drivers, they keep going. The total time to reach Rockhampton, which I think you can do in about eight hours nowadays, yes. was 16 hours and 30 minutes, so they were moving along. But they point out that um, in a few sections on the road to Rockhampton, they were doing 74 miles an hour. So that's 120 k. That's quick enough. And, and it's not the conditions we drive on today. We enjoy you know, wide highways and bitumenised roads. Yeah, that's right. and they're quite keen here to tell the world they're driving a car at 74 miles an hour yeah. on these old roads. Anyhow, they get to Rocky. There's a 27-minute delay there. Um, but they said that they did 68 miles an hour coming into Rocky. Then they say at 2.30 in the morning, this is the next morning after leaving Rocky, an accident occurred which caused 22 and a half hours delay. Speeding along at well over 50 miles an hour, that's 80k, in the dark... Now, this will be without seatbelts or anything else, and you name it. And yep, that's right. And low-intensity lights. Yes. They hit a huge rock in the middle of the road, and that doubled up the front axle. <laughs> that's not good. I suspect they were lucky to live, quite frankly. Yes. Um, anyhow, you're... luckily, the driver hung on to the car and kept it on the road. A relief gang from Mackay was sent out to save them and came at 6 a.m. The damage repaired, they moved on, etc. So they keep talking on about how they keep going all the way up to uh, Townsville. 
And in the end, they drive the 982 miles, which is 1,580 kilometres, in a total time of 60 hours. But when you take out the 20 hours for the accident, whatever else, it comes to a driving time of 37 hours of actual running, they say. Interestingly, I uh, went to good old Google Earth and, you know, looked at how it would happen today. They drove 1,580 kilometres. Today it's 1,340 kilometres, which is, you know, short, mm-hmm. uh, not all that yeah. much shorter, really. Mm. And according to uh, street map, it should take you 14 hours, which means an average speed of uh, 90 kilometres an hour. In reality, these guys' average speed was only 43 kilometres an yeah. hour when they were driving. But the thing that intrigues me is how they're promoting quite, you know, vigorously that they can drive this car at 120 k. So two things come out of this for me. One is, what in the heck were the speed limits? And the second thing is, why are they promoting a car that can drive well over the speed limit? Okay, Kev, now I'm, I'm a bit intrigued about this uh, speed uh, vehicles can do and we've been talking about and speed limits. We have cars that seem to be able to drive very, very quickly, um, particularly when you compare that with the type of roads and our driver's experience. Yeah, well, it all goes back to the very start, I suppose, of, of uh, the human nature. You right. have a machine, how fast can, can it go? Yep. Can I beat you? Yep. So we we put the uh, we put the car into a, into a race situation back in the when they first started developed cars. We've been racing cars since the early 1900s, yep. and uh, these cars could always do far more speed than what they uh, were able to uh, handle on the actual road itself. Okay, but um, you know they could reach quite high top speeds. Yep. So um, my earlier comments about looking like Al Capone's gangster car, so the Tura was uh, designed to beat the police, was it? Oh, we imagine so, yeah, to some extent, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got away from um, Elliot Ness. Yes. So, so uh, with, the, with the government wanting to um, legislate for speed and stuff like that, was it a case because they're too lazy to build decent roads for us to drive as fast as we wanted to, well, that, was that the reason I would put a speed limit in place? I, no, I suppose you know, it's everything, everything's to do with funding. Um, and we were still coming out of the horse and cart age in the early early 20s and early so. 30s and so forth. So uh, um, the, the road conditions we had back then were the, was the, the standard. Yes. Uh, the Americans, are, I think, and the Germans were the first ones to move to a major highway, Ashbelt, yes. Tarmac Highways. And they were the the masters of engineering speed with Mercedes Benz and and uh, and the Americans with their yes, V8s. Yes. So um, we followed in the same footsteps, but um, it was the need to I think the like I said, human nature that everybody wants to go quicker than anybody else, and um, we've mostly all done it ourselves at certain times. Oh no, and, I've uh, never broken the speed limit ever. I'm sure. <laughs> Not yeah, when anybody was around anyway. might pass on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, just on, on the Australian experience, um, I guess the most classic example of Australians wanting to drive fast is Bathurst. What, what's the history of the Bathurst race? It was to um, had two purposes. One was to uh, test the endurance of vehicles uh, over a race situation, over, over distance and time, and then to, to win the race. And if you... You won on Sunday, you sold on Monday. Sold on Monday. So, yeah. so, so Bathurst was, was closely related to production car sales? Production car sales, yeah. particularly up in the 1960s and through to the 1970s. 
people would actually drive their race car to the track, not like they have these days with the big transporters and, and everything rocks up in the, in the yeah. big box and the doors open and they all come out. But um, people would actually drive their race car to the track. Um, we had stories of you know, Brock and Bond doing that sort of thing in the in the late 60s, early 70s. So wasn't there some rule about the cars at those times that they had to be off the show? show yeah, front? they had to be a production car and you had to, based on a production car, and the the manufacturer had to produce a minimum of, um, of 500. They could produce more if they wanted to. And that was to what they, the word was, homologate it to the racing standard. So they'd, uh, they'd produce 500 vehicles. And the example of that was the, the Triana XU1, which was a derivative of the basic GTR. So it was a uh, heavily modified six-cylinder engine, fitted into a small body, great horsepower, and um, and the equivalent was the the Fords Ford V8s. But yeah. but isn't this just a continuum of what I was suggesting about the Willys? It was designed to do seventy five miles an hour. By the by, this time that little Tirana was doing what one hundred and seventy miles an hour or oh, something. Close stupid. to it, yeah. Yes. So how could you safely drive one of those things on the highway? Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, well, probably not on Australian highways, in, but maybe on the autobahns. Don't do autobahns, yeah. So, so it was the a of route that comes down the road, and also those cars, yeah. back those compared to the race cars today, their, their road holding capability yeah. was somewhat suspect as well, too, even the racetrack. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they suffered from poor brakes and um, tyre combinations and um, uh, body roll. And I remember one car coming down Conrod Strait, it got to the very end, and it couldn't take the kernel, it rolled over and the, and the roof went flat to the door to the doors. Right. Oh dear. So, I was going to ask you how important Bathurst was to the evolution of the driving experience for Australians and, and to, when you mentioned that the roof goes flat it suggests that we've got to do something about making sure it doesn't happen so that therefore would benefit. Mm, it did benefit the, uh, the, the body integrity of the vehicle. Yep. So from that the engineering department back in the, in the, in the manufacturer's would take their experiences as to if things broke yep. during a race, a body structure broke or gave way, they would know then to uh, how to um, where they needed to place extra reinforcement. And, of course, down the track with computerisation, that, um, uh, the, um, the, that would be taken over by the computer. Yeah. And uh, the mathematics would uh, design where the spot welds would need to go on the vehicle. So, so the cars that you see at Bathurst nowadays... Um, they don't look like they're driven on the highways anymore. So no, they're not 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 production cars. Not they production look, they, cars. They anyway. might look like a production car, but they're not a production motor vehicle. No, not at all. So, so well, the standard changed in 1973-74. And the reason for that was uh, the uh, furor about supercars was that were being developed by the manufacturers to uh, beat each other at the next year's Bathurst in the so next models. This was all about seventeen-year-olds being able to. Buy cars. Buy cars, and um, you know, I had one. I had next year one as myself as a, oh, as a young lad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a young so, Mr. Brock, hey? Hey, oh, you'd give it a try occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that, uh, the furor was that uh, that came from the, the leaking of the information that uh, Ford were about to release a uh, the fastest production sedan car in the world. And for the Australian roads, General Motors were developing a V8 version of the XU1 called the XU2. A V8 in that little Tirana thing? Correct. Crikey. Yep. How would you even keep it on the road? Uh, that would come down then to um, you know, structural uh, suspension systems and so forth like that as well too. So I've, I've seen one, somebody had, um, had modified a car back at that same time, put a V8 in it, and the thing just jumped around the place all over the place because it wasn't, uh, mm. wasn't factory built. Yeah. But... Um, 
Yeah, no, that was, and I think there was, a, that came through some legislation in New South Wales. I think the New South Wales Transport Minister got on the bandwagon with the supercars and uh, at motoring rider called Evan Green. Right. So it's easier to ban them, tell the manufacturers not to make them than it is to, for the governments to control the people who are going to get their hands on them. Yeah, I think um, uh, the story goes that um, General Motors sort of said, no, no, OK, we'll, we'll, pull, we'll pull the production of the XU2 out of the system and, uh, and Ford reluctantly did it and, and Chrysler bailed out real quick as well too. So they were developing a super version of the a V8 version of the, uh, the Charger. Yes, Yes, I remember but that. it only took a matter of about a week or two when the whole supercar thing died real quick. Yes. Mm. I'll bet there was uh, some shedding of tears amongst all the spanner brains, but um, some <laughs> other people on the roads might have been happy that those things weren't flying well, around. The finance mm. department was, would have probably been happy with them because those things would have consumed a fair bit of resources, I imagine, to build them. Yeah, yeah and, and research and development would be heavily involved, engineering would be involved. Yeah, but, but that's that R and D would still be going on at Bathurst even today. You didn't need to sell them on the road to develop better cars. Today, it's because they're not production cars. Um, there's no, there'd be there's less transfer of that technology into a, into oh, a production into road vehicle. Cars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. You get a feel good feeling that the car that you drive was the one that crossed the line first. Oh yeah, because it looks but, the same. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and also the fact that we. We no longer have to do that R and that degree of R and D in Australia because we don't. We no longer have a local industry. Mm, indeed, that's not to say we don't. That the manufacturers, the manufacturers, particularly Ford and Holden, have have maintained a research and development and vehicle testing facilities in this country, which is good for their global programs. So um, the Holden Proving Ground has just gone through a $17 million upgrade program at Lang Lang in Victoria to, uh, to help out with global programs. So, uh, Kev, with the change to like a world scene for cars, uh, that uh, they make one platform and different cars everywhere, um, we talk about Australia being a little bit different in lots of things and tuning the cars for Australia. Does that really have to happen still or is it... Something that they don't worry about. You put them on a boat from Korea or South Africa or Austria or whatever. They do tune um, cars to some extent for this country, um, even the the Koreans. Yep. They will send cars down for evaluation purposes. I don't know about the Chinese yet, but um, they do send cars out to this country, particularly for um, uh, air conditioning type okay. requirements yep. um, and, and road, road handling. Yep. So, um, and like I said, you know, with General Motors and Ford still maintain their test tracks here in Australia. Yeah. There's a degree of, um, you know, that sort of engineering still required in this country. Because yep. we do have somewhat unique roads. We don't have autobahns. We don't have major, you know, interstate four-lane highways like they have in the US. Yes. So, um, and we do have a lot of country roads. So you design a car to drive from New York to uh, Chicago is different than driving a car from... Um, Brisbane, Brisbane to Durandy or whatever, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. or from uh, you know, out the back blocks through to um, um, the um, the gas fields, okay. for example. Yeah. So, uh, heading off on a slight tangent, uh, for a while Australia sold cars to the Middle East. Um, was that because cars designed for Australian conditions translated easily into that market? Yeah, well, that uh, we've had. If you developed an export program for your product, you had to design cars that uh, covered all markets. Yep. So that was a major advantage that we had 
at that time we were you know, particularly Australian people were, were getting products here that um, uh, they may not have got if there wasn't an export program yep. Yep. so uh, I know it's a bit off the track but even just the, uh, the, the use of stands of um, uh, galvanised panels yep. oh, um, yeah. on, on vehicles in Australia was specifically to uh, cater for overseas markets where there's, they lay ice on the road during the snow season yep. to prevent okay. rust so with the galvanised panels were in vehicles, the automatic starting of vehicles, uh, remotely starting of vehicles was designed in the vehicle as a Holden to cater for the Middle East market where they could have the ability to start the car remotely and the air conditioning system the would cool the car down yeah. before they get into the car. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Makes some sense. So, so if someone those... wants to start a car to warm it up and here we want to be starting a car to cool it. Cool it down, down indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've so, all done uh, that at one stage or another. Yeah. The thing I noticed too with the, with the, the, the speed thing and the, with this regard to the Tourer, the Wheelie's Tourer, was that so much was being talked about in the 20s and 30s about speed limits, but not very much was really being done about it. Yeah, I, I tried to find out about speed limits when, when I saw this because I was thinking, yeah, this is a bit unscrupulous, you know, advertising a car that can do 75 miles an hour when I thought the speed limit would have been 50 or something. It appears to me that, yes, there's lots of newspaper articles about should we have a speed limit and the ROCQ wanted this, that and the other and what have you. But as far as I can determine, um, first speed limits in Queensland only came in in 1950 and uh, it was 50 miles an hour on rural roads and Mm -hmm. 30 in urban roads. Mm. So it wasn't that, uh, what's the word, corrupt if that's the word, to use Mm. to advertise a car that did 75 miles an hour if there was no speed limit that it was actually exceeding. Yeah. I mean, that seems quite astounding nowadays to think that there isn't a speed limit, but it's the way the world was. In the good old days, though, a lot of people wouldn't have been speeding. We talk about the ones that were. It's like the the marketing point, but but a lot of um, uh, Mr and Mrs Joe Average uh, wouldn't have really been speeding. They were just concentrating on surviving the journey. No, no, I tend to agree with Kev on this. I think if you put petrol in front of a young lad, they'll <laughs> want to drive as fast as they can. Oh, no, I think I've, I've I'm a lot older than I was back in uh, 1972, and I think I've slowed down a fair bit since then, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, I sure you only mean in terms of your driving, not, not your general life. Oh, no, no, of course not. But the other thing, too, is looking at these speed limits in Australia, they vary from state to state. Yeah. And from city to city, they vary. Yep. And, yes. um, you know, it's... Well, um, on, on the Pacific Highway from Brisbane to Sydney, they vary every 200 yards, yeah. don't they? <laughs> Anyhow, let's move Kev, on. Mm. Well, Kev, around the world, uh, these sort of discussions taking place in other countries about cars being too powerful and too fast for um, the conditions locally? I think it happens in every country, yeah. In every major automotive country in the world, yes. It's, um, but, you know, the, the Germans are, are very active. Um, the autobahn themselves, though, they, they've, they have a fairly open speed limit on the autobahns, but um, road safety is a major factor in every country in the world. Yeah, Kev, we've had quite a long chat about speed and teenage testosterone and everything else, but the strange thing about this personal story was Jack was run over by his car probably doing two miles an hour, even yeah. though it could yeah. do 75 miles an hour. So. Exactly. Yeah. It's, so it's uh, ironic. It's ironic indeed. Hmm. Yes, well, um, that's the end of this particular episode. We would like your views on this topic. Do you have a similar story in your family? If so, perhaps 
contact us on our email or comment on our Facebook page. The contact details are on our web page, which is www.todaysstories.com.au. Full details of the story are available on our website. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast. And thank you for listening. Thank you.